Welcome listeners to episode 28 of the Running Guide podcast, where I aim to provide informative content and interviews with elite athletes and health professionals from around the world, like in today's episode, where I'm chatting with an extremely distinguished guest whose life both personally and professionally has been dedicated in the pursuit of improved athletic performance within the field of sports science and all that surrounds it. Very honoured to have this gentleman on my show. Welcome to the Running Guide podcast, Professor Dick Telford. Thank you very much, Aston. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. A pleasure to talk to you about running. No, look, thank you so much, Dick, for agreeing uh, to be a guest on the show, mate. You've been uh, such a huge innovator and, and contributor in the field of sports science, distance running, and uh, and kids' health. So, uh, so I would sort of believe the information that uh, and all the stories that you've gathered over all those years in research. We could pretty much do a podcast series, but we'll see what we can get out today. There's uh, just so much information we could chat about. Now, I'm going to mention uh, the AFL Grand Final. The Tigers picked up another flag, and I'm going use that segue for a reason because in your early days uh, growing up in Melbourne down there so I just want to head back to those days and if you can chat about um, your own sporting pursuit in Aussie rules and cricket I know you're attending Northcote High School there so Melbourne boy and then uh, we can chat about why you uh, chose to head down the pathway into uh, studying sports science please. (laughs) I guess Aston we've got a a lot of years to talk about now. <laughs> so we do, I, mate. We, 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 we can, we can move, lose a few, but I just love the listeners to hear about, <laughs> about your background first. Uh, that, that's fine. Uh, now, like, uh, I, I remember my footy years, you know, as though they were yesterday, which, you know, it's uh, there have been a lot, a lot of decades ago now. But in those days, um, I, I grew up in right in the centre of Melbourne. And uh, strangely enough, uh, my father had just come back from the war and uh, had a scholarship to go to Melbourne University. So we lived close to Melbourne University in, in, the, in the suburb called Parkville. But one of the reasons we lived in Parkville was it was one of the cheapest places to live in the whole of Victoria. Now, in those days, um, you know, in the 50s, basically, um, this is the ni- <laughs> 1950s, um, the inner city suburbs, no one wanted to live there. In fact, there was sort of it was sort of a slummy area around there, and and over over the road there's a place called Camp Pell. It's now called uh, uh, it's it's now housed houses the uh, the the children's hospital, and it's a it's a beautiful big park now. But it was called Camp Pell, and that was full of huts where they were repatriating uh, soldiers that had come back and had nowhere to live. And uh, my father in those days used to get me going. He used to like you know, when I was a six or seven year old, get get me out for a bit of a run, but I wasn't allowed to run anywhere near that park because there were dogs that would bite you and everything like that. So it was a, different in those days. But I was going to mention um, that all I thought about in the early days was football and cricket because in, in Melbourne there were no other sports around beside football and cricket. Uh, we, we knew about the Olympic Games because that came in 1956, but football and cricket was our religion. Uh, it was Everything we thought about, everything I thought about, I went to school, but I was still thinking about football and cricket. <laughs> and uh, I had a, a terrific upbringing in sport uh, based on those two sports. And, and uh, I used to actually get a tram and go across to the MCG and, and, and watch the, the, the Sheffield Shield cricket. I watched a bit of test cricket there. I can remember some vivid games there. And I'd go and watch Collingwood. I'd stand on a, a soapbox that my dad uh, used to bring across, we'd uh, catch the bus down to Victoria Park, uh, where Collingwood uh, ground was, and I'd be in the outer, jammed up against everybody because there were no seats there. Uh, we could only get standing room, 
and it'd be packed out. I don't know, probably 25, 30,000 people in those days in the old Collingwood ground. And, and that was where I was introduced to sport, um, Aston, and that's where okay. it all started. I believe you played uh, a fair amount of games in the VFA, and in 1968, you actually awarded the JJ Liston Trophy for the best and fairest. So you were playing at a reasonable level there. Yeah, it was funny because um, when I left school, uh, I I was sort of tossing up between a few sports, and I must admit I was starting to get a bit keen on baseball as well okay. to match up with my cricket. Um, and but Collingwood asked me to come down and play, and I played with Collingwood seconds for a while. I actually, won their third best and fairest. Uh, I think the second year I was down there in the seconds, but I couldn't quite break into the first at Collingwood. I was a bit small, you know, and as a young kid, um, and uh, uh, to cut a long story short, um, I, um, I I gave footy away for a little while, uh, but decided to build up all my strength, put on about uh, three quarters of a stone of just muscle, you know, perhaps a bit more than that, like five or six kilograms doing weights and things like that. And then I was asked to go down to Preston Footy Club in the VFA um, because a mate next door was playing with him on the half-forward flank. And there's a fellow called Alan Joyce down there who coached, um, he, he ended up coaching Hawthorne and successful coach in Western Australia. He was coaching Preston. And uh, through him, I was asked to go down. Had a game in the seconds there and, you know, couldn't stop getting kicks in the seconds at, at, in that particular game. They put me in the first the next next week. And that particular year, I missed the first three, uh, two or three games, I think, because I wasn't intending to, absolutely intending to play. But <laughs> had a pretty good year. We won the flag. And uh, and uh, I won the uh, Liston Trophy for the best and fairest in the competition, and I won the uh, I won Preston's best and fairest, and uh, I, you know, I didn't look back from there, and we won the flag again the following year. So well, was, I had a terrific couple of couple of two or three years at Preston uh, at Preston Footy Club. Yeah, yeah. And were you playing cricket at this time as well, or was that another chapter? <laughs> no, um, uh, that. Yeah, the funny part about it is, is that um, I uh, was also asked to to coach the uh, the Preston Cricket Club. There was an ex-Test cricketer called Jack Potter. In fact, he was one of my heroes, a fantastic cricketer. I used to watch him play at the MCG. And uh, Jack Potter um, was coaching Preston Cricket Club, but then decided that the, he, he, he wanted to give it away. I think he went across to South Australia to, to live. And uh, he rang me up and said, look, Dick, um, uh, you know, I'm giving away the coaching. Um, I've, I've talked to the committee and they'd be pretty happy if, if you took on the coaching job at Preston. I said, I said, oh, well, you know, that does sound interesting, Jack. I'll give it a bit of thought. And, and I, took, I took up the job. And so for, for a couple of years there, I was actually coaching the football, Preston Football Club mm. um, and Preston Cricket Club simultaneously. <laughs> and I think, and I was just talking to, to a, a chap about this the other day, I think I've, I've done something fairly unique there, that in coaching those two um, teams simultaneously, when we were in the finals of the cricket in that year, and I was doing pre-season training for the football club at the same time uh, in the at the end of the year, I actually went out to cricket practice in my cricket gear, took my football gear out into the middle of the ground 
And once cricket practice had finished, I changed into my footy gear <laughs> at the end. And, and, and as the runners, all, as, as the footballers all came out for their pre-season football training on the ground. So I've actually uh, coached the two teams um, within, the, within the one hour on yeah. the one ground. <laughs> okay. So, so what age were you at that time? Oh, I would have been uh, probably 26, 27. Okay. Yep, yep. Yeah. You yep. know, I, I, I wasn't... I, I was a keen sportsman. I, in a way, I was. I didn't. I didn't um, apply myself as a lot of other people would have. I was more keen on a whole lot of different things at the time. I was. I was. I was then getting very, very keen on studying biochemistry and physiology at Melbourne University after I did a phys ed diploma, and uh, I was studying pretty hard at that particular time. So I had a lot of other interests. Mm. Um, uh, at at that, and also I was just married and a little kid, and uh, first child there. Um, so I had a hell of a lot of interests um, at that particular time. And um, when I look back, I probably had too many interests, but it seemed to work out okay. Yeah. And did you come from a sporting family, or were your parents like you know suggesting you get involved in sport, or was that something that you did yourself? Were your siblings involved in it, or the father? I think um, was. He, he um, as I understand, I never really knew exactly how well he played football, but he, he played down at the um, uh, place called Apollo Bay in Colac in the Western Districts, uh, which is where I spent a little bit of time early in my life, uh, on a farm there. Um, and he played and went to Colac High School. And apparently he was a good player, but at the age of 17 and a half, he was off to the war. Okay. And and, uh, and I think that interrupted his career, but it seemed to rub off on me because he he was just so keen about Collingwood, yeah. and of course I, I became keen about Collingwood, uh, and he took me to the games, and you know I'd, you know run it with, in those days we'd run out in the ground with a footy, and he'd come out with me and kick the ball, and there'd be kids everywhere. You're not allowed to do it nowadays, but we'd run out, and then, then I'd go home and out the back and play around with the footy for an hour and a half or two before I had to come in for dinner, and uh, and the same with with cricket. You know, we'd just knock around. But I never, ever played a single game of football or cricket until I went to high school because the school I went to was a little college rural practising school right in the middle of Melbourne University. It's not there anymore. But I only had 30 kids in my school, in that that section of my school. So that's five kids in each grade. And we never had enough for a team. So I, I never knew what it was like to play in a game against another school or against you know any any sort of a game until I got to high school and uh, I seemed to I seemed to pick it up pretty quickly there and I, was, I just loved it yeah yeah and how far did you um well what sort of level did you get to in cricket and were you a specialist batsman or bowler or? yeah I used, used to used to bat I was never, I wasn't a great cricketer but I, I learned to um, understand the game pretty well um, through my studies in, in um, physical education, then in then then going on and in biomechanics and looking and, and physiology and looking at the, the sports, I got to understand it, and I, I soon realised that I hadn't, even though I had some very good coaches at uh, Melbourne University, Frank Tyson was one. He played, you know, one of the greatest fast bowlers ever for England. Another an, another guy called George Tribe, who was a bowler. Uh, left arm spinning bowler. He, you know, for Australia, he was a terrific bowler. So I had great coaches, but they were both bowlers. And I just realised that I'd never ever had any coaching myself as to how to hit a cricket ball, except 
playing with a stump and a, and a golf ball in my garage with my mate next door, which we used to play for hours. So I had a good eye, but didn't have the right technique. And it wasn't until I started coaching that I realised that my te- technique was flawed. But it didn't stop me getting playing a few district games, which is the um, for Uni- Melbourne University and Fitzroy, which is the level below Shield level. Um, but I was probably a bit lucky just because I had a good eye. I just didn't have a good technique. When I went to Preston and coached there, uh, even even though I didn't score a lot of runs, they were difficult to score because the wickets were, uh, were weren't all that good and the grass was always a bit long. And if you got 30 or 40, it was a damn good score, damn good scores. So... Um, I was pretty happy to play reasonably well there when I was coaching, and and we won the we won the the, the flag there as well as the football in the same year when I was co- um, when I was coaching the cricket uh, same year as I was or a year after I was playing for Preston in the footy where we won the flag there. So um, it, it turned out all right in the end, but I was never a great never a great cricketer. What was your decision to uh, get involved in the sports science? Like when you were a kid, what what was the interest in that? It's just the fact that you just loved loved sport, loved moving, loved exercise, loved understanding. Yeah, well, first of all, um, I did science at school. Right. And, uh, and and I probably could have got into most degrees at Melbourne University, but I chose phys ed because I was just just wanted to do phys ed. Mm. And uh, and I just loved the idea of of studying uh, the, the the way people played sport, the way people moved, uh, all those sorts of things. I didn't have any great aspirations in to get into the medical area at that stage. So later on, I I thought about it. I thought about it, but didn't um, after I'd done a degree there. And uh, yeah, that was just a fascination with sport all around. Uh, I, I think um, that just drew me into a, a diploma. It wasn't even a degree at, at, at those particular that particular time in. 1963 when I started Melbourne University but as it turned out I was I I reckon I would have spent 18 years at Melbourne University on and off with part-time work and uh, some full-time study uh, and teaching at the same time then lecturing at a a, uh, you know at an institute uh, part-time as well so I reckon I would have spent about 18 years altogether at Melbourne University yeah, before you know, just getting an honours degree and a and then a then a, a master's degree, and then a, and a PhD in the in the medical school in the in the department of physiology. Okay, okay. So you're obviously doing a lot of running, you know, with cricket and, and footy. But when did your actual you know transition begin into, let's call it competitive running? One of the reasons that I got a lot of kicks on the football field uh, is again, I, I don't think I had a lot of ability. I, my eye-hand coordination wasn't bad, but I wasn't a great kick. I wasn't a great mark. Uh, you know, I don't think I moved exceptionally well, but I did have a lot of. I had a bit of speed endurance. You know, I could keep running and 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 run reasonably quickly when I had to, but but keep running all day. And in those particular days, when I was playing at Preston, uh, the grounds were a bit smaller. And they decided, you know, that one at one stage to to uh, reduce the number of players on the ground from 18 to 16, so there were no wings, and allowed allowed me to play a running game in the middle. Now, also in those days, um, what we weren't allowed to do, if you if you're off the if you went off the ground, say you were injured or sick or whatever happened, if you were off the ground, you weren't allowed on again. So you couldn't. There were no interchanges. We just had, in those days, a 17th and 18th man, 16 the team. And you, if you're off, you stayed off. 
So in other words, I was able to just keep running from wing to wing, down into the half forward line, half back line, just keep running all day. And sooner or later, sooner or later, no matter how good the player was on me, I'd find myself by myself a lot of the time. And therefore, my halfback flanks, and I had some very good ones, <laughs> would be able to just pick me out by myself on a wing running, and I'd be able to bounce the ball a couple of times and, and, and kick it down into the forward line with no one on me. So I, I was a bit of a cheat that way. I got most of my kicks, and I used to get a lot of kicks, a lot of handballs, you know, certainly the kicks by myself, having been fed by some good players on the half-back line, which... That led, led me into, uh, as soon as I retired from footy, I thought, well, gee, I'd like to do some running. So I um, thought, well, the obvious thing to do now is to try and run a marathon. <laughs> that, was what I, that was my next aim, to run a marathon. And so I did a bit of training and ran a marathon. Yeah. yeah. What, what time did you kick over the first marathon? The first marathon, I, I trained for about 10 weeks and did exactly what I know you shouldn't do. Uh, I heard runners were running 100 miles a week. So I, uh, the first week, I think I ran about 30 miles, second week 40, third week 50, yeah. then 60, then 70, got up to 100 miles a week. And I thought, well, this, this is not too bad. And I wasn't getting injured. Uh, not that I'd ever heard of runners getting injured before at that stage. <laughs> it's a little bit different now. Um, uh, so I went down, and, uh, down to Frankston, then out of Melbourne, 26 miles away from the GPO, started the race. And uh, uh, I thought, well, I reckon I can run about three hours. So I was running along at about three-hour pace, got to about three miles or four miles before the GPO and just completely blew up. You know, got the cramps, everything. Mm. I, I didn't. Re- you know, I knew that you know, you, people ran out of glycogen and, and I knew that, you know, you had to – do a lot more training than I'd do. I just thought I'd get through it, um, but I didn't. But strangely enough, just as I got all these cramps, and I can still remember this, a lady on the side of the road, it was at St. K- near St Kilda Road down there, running up to St Kilda. I would have had two or three miles to go, I reckon, probably a couple of miles to go. Gave me a bag of jelly beans. And she said, well, would you like some jelly beans? I said, oh, yeah, I'd like some jelly beans. And uh, here I was, I could hardly walk. Within about a minute to two minutes, the jelly beans kicked right in, mm. and I was able to jog in. Um, I didn't run in three hours. I think I ran it in three hours, 12 or something like that, uh, in my first marathon. And uh, uh, I was pretty happy to get in. I, it was just a, I can always remember that. Everybody, everybody does, I suppose. Remember their first marathon. It was the slowest marathon I ever ran. Everyone after that was a bit quicker than the one before. and uh, But it was probably, yeah, it would be the most memorable marathon. Could you experience hitting a wall in your first marathon? That's what it's all about. So, so, so what, what, what age were you then? Oh, well, then, uh, gee, uh, that was, uh, I would have been, um, yeah, 32, 33. Okay, yeah. 33, yeah. I see here, you know, you're running pretty well over the 1,500-metre distance in the mid-'80s. You, um, you picked up the uh, the M40s uh, at the Nationals uh, for the 1,500 in 85 and then uh, third, equal third, actually, at the World Veterans in 87. So, you know, you ran a marathon, but you also had a lot of speed there on the track as well, and we'll sort of run through your PBs in, in a second. But um, 
Yeah, so were, were you sort of focusing on, on any distance or is it like a, a progression that you were going through like a, run, a lot of runners do? Or, or, or you've now opened up another area that allows me to boast a little bit. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's, boast, it's, it's sort of boasting a little bit in the same way that, you know, I was able to change at, at Preston Footy Ground to say that I've done something that nobody else has done sure. and it's going to be unlikely they're going to be. And here's, a, here's another one. And it, it sort of fits in with answering your, your, your question, Aston. Um, every race that I've run from, uh, and I only did middle distance races, from 800 to 1500 to 3K to 5K, 10K, then to half marathon and marathon, every race that I've run, the very last race that I ever ran, was my personal best, the fastest I ever ran. Okay. Now, I yep. asked a lot of people about that one. Yeah. I've never come across anyone that's gone close to their last race ever being their first, their being their personal best in every single race they've ever run, every yeah. single event, let alone one. Yeah. Did, <laughs> you, did you purposely go out to do that, or is it just the way it happened, or, yeah? In a, well, not purposely, but there's a, there's a flaw in my character Mm-hmm. And uh, I had the same thing when I played golf. When I get to a certain level, and I think I've trained as well as I possibly can, and I'm not likely to get any better, I'll have a go at something else. Now, that happened um, with running for me. Because the first race that I did, uh, uh, after I left school, I, you know, I ran a few little races at school. Uh, I did win a couple of mile races and cross-country races and things like that, but I never took that seriously. But my first race uh, that I trained for was the marathon. That coincided, too, with me developing a lifelong, you know, friendship with Robert DiCostella, uh, being his physiologist and nutritionist for a long time. Now, then, at when I ran the marathon and got as fast as I possibly could in the marathon, I had a few other people, and maybe we might want to talk about this later, but I had a few people ask me to coach them. I hadn't even considered coaching running while I was a physiologist at the Institute of Sport. But um, I thought, if I'm going to coach runners, and they're running 5Ks and 1500s and 800, I'd better run these damn things myself to find out what it's all about. So from the marathon, when I'd run a few marathons, and I gradually got my time down, so as I mentioned, that the, my, the last marathon I ran was the fastest. Then I ran some, uh, at that stage, I'd, I'd run a couple of half marathons as well. Then I went to 5K, ran some 5Ks. Then I went to 1,500 metres and 800 metres and ran, ran those as well. As the years went by, um, this is between 35 to 43 or so, so by the time I got to 43 and 40, 43, 42, 43, 44, I was running the fastest I'd ever run in 800 and 1500. And that's when I you know, won the national 1500 and got third in the, um, in the world, uh, the veterans championship, which happened to be in Melbourne. Um, in, and that particular race, which was the last race, I can tell you that was the last race I ever ran, was that 1500. Okay. Yep. The last race I ever ran. Hmm. And that was my PB in the fifteen hundred. So go. I probably could have run it. But so it's in answering your question about was it purposeful that hmm. I did that? 
Well, in a way it was because I wanted to find out what these shorter distances were all about and, how, and what it was like to really get lactic and hurt and have to try and get, you know, that last 100 metres where, you, you know, everything's sort of starting to tie up. I wanted to feel that. It just so happened that, that I ran the marathons and the half marathons and the longer distance stuff before that and then had to change my training, which was a really good experience for me to do that, change my training so that as I was getting older, between 39, 40, 41, 42, 43, I had to improve my training. So that as I got older, I got quicker. And, yeah. and I, all I was doing is sort of recapturing a little bit of the speed that I might have had on the footy field. Yeah, no, you're doing it in reverse order. And obviously, you know, the learnings that you would have, you would have got from that uh, to pass on to your coaching would have been uh, huge as well. I'll, I'll just get the listeners up to, um, up to those times. So I've got here the 800 metres in 157.6. Uh, I got the fifteen hundred at three fifty seven. Now I um three fifty seven. That's that's moving thick. Uh, I don't have any five and a ten. I got your half marathon at sixty eight thirty. Whereabouts did you run that? Uh, in the uh, sixty eight thirty. I think I ran that in Alice Springs. Alice Springs. Wow. <laughs> I was over there with a with a, one of my mates there at one stage and decided to run a half marathon. And I think we run a a, a mile. Okay. A mile down the street, which I believe I, yeah, I did. I won that mile down the street, the the, the uh, May mile. Yeah. Okay. Um, day after I ran that half marathon, which <laughs> I'm not sure not sure I could do anything like that nowadays. That's for sure. And and the marathon two twenty seven. That's exceptional time. Where else was that? Uh, that would have been two twenty seven. Would have been Canberra. Yeah. Okay. I think I'd, yeah. yeah right. Yeah. Canberra. You must have been up the top top five for that time, surely. I don't know. We had some good runners around. I, yeah. I don't know about time. I might have finished in the top ten, um, mm. but I never worried about where I fit. I, I do remember having a bit of a tussle with a couple of other guys uh, on that particular day uh, that I knew, but really it was the times that always interested me. I, I never considered myself at when I'm running in a in a group, you know, with with uh, uh, you know Australian representatives. Obviously, younger than me at that stage, you, you know, but uh, but much better runners. I never ever considered myself a, a really good runner. There's no no question about that. I was running with people all the time that were were good runners. And I I just used to love just running faster than I'd run before. I really love running a PB. Uh, and as a, as a you know as I've said before that that happened time time and time again. And each year I'd get better in in the event that I was working for. And that's why when I'm coaching now, you know, some, you know, I, I get as much satisfaction uh, in seeing someone get their satisfaction from running a PB as, as perhaps, you know, seeing a top runner that I'm coaching get a medal in Commonwealth Games or in the one Olympic Games that I've had a medalist. Yeah. You know, like, you know, I mean, it is a bit different, but you know what I mean. It's, yeah. it's, it's yeah. The, the enjoyment of running really is part of the enjoyment of coaching. Sure, sure. And let's 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 start moving into that side. But let's head back to uh to the early days of the Australian Institute of Sport (AIS) here, mate. I believe Don Talbot offered you uh, that job, that first sports science position back in back in the eighties. Um, I guess you were there to uh, help develop, and which you did a, a world leading athlete development sports science center. Pretty successful. Definitely, it's glory days of the AIS. That must have been pretty exciting. Oh, it was it was very exciting, and uh, well, you know, I got a hell of a shock when Don Talbot was. He was. Uh, I was giving a talk on. I was working with some, some of the very early work. This would have been in the. Uh, I was doing it in the late seventies. I was doing some very early work with, um, uh, with an engineer 
and we wanted to develop a, a kayak ergometer that was to measure some kayakers. I was, I was doing a little work at uh, Melbourne University and and a place called Preston Institute is now Philip went be called Philip Institute then then RMIT part of RMIT. Anyway, I was doing some work there and. I was giving a talk on how we could measure the fitness of kayak canoers uh, very effectively new, using these, this new de, new ergometer that we developed with my engineer mate from uh, Repco Research out in Dandenong in Melbourne. And um, this chap right up the back was a must be a lot of people in that lecture now as I think about it because it was pretty dark and he asked me a few curly questions. I, uh, you know, I thought about it a little bit aggressively as well, and uh, you know I asked the questions and then. The same person I recognised his voice came up and saw me after the uh, after I'd finished the lecture, and uh, and he said uh, uh, I, and I sort of thought I'd recognise the chap. And he said, "Oh, my name's uh, 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 Don Talbot. I'm from Canberra at the moment, and I'm, I'm, I've, uh, we've advertised a position uh, as a for, in sports science to head up sports science and to, uh, and to develop a staff in sports medicine at the Institute of Sport." And I said, I, I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I read that, I read that um, ad- advertisement. He said, well, and I said, well, and I said, oh, who did you appoint? He said, well, we didn't appoint anybody. We had ten people, but we didn't appoint anyone. We weren't happy with them. And uh, and right on the spot, he said, uh, if you want the job, you've got it. I oh, couldn't wow. believe it. Yeah. He just said that to me straight off. Yeah. It, I'd met him for ten seconds. Wow, <laughs> you must have answered those questions really well. Well, I don't think I did, as it turned out. <laughs> but, you know, somehow he, he found that I was, you know, I'd played a bit of sport. I was interested in sport. Uh, I'd done some science, you know. Mm. I uh, worked on measuring athletes, and I think he just came down to just, you know, somehow they'd, they'd arranged or his group had arranged to, to offer me the job on the spot. Mm. And... Uh, uh, I um, he, he gave me 24 hours, typical Don Talbot, to think about it, <laughs> putting the pressure on me. I went to my boss over at uh, RMIT, as it is now, and he said, look, you've got to take it. So I took it for a, a year, a one-year stint. But I, as it turned out, everything turned out well, and I, I'm still in Canberra, and that's uh, a long time ago now, 1981. I sort of uh, I remember as a kid seeing your face pop up on telly when you guys were um put together that uh that cereal called kellogg's sustain yeah. uh, that's probably the first time that, that i saw you now was that sort of in an attempt to sort of i guess get a better quality breakfast cereal in front of kids get them away from the high uh, sugary type cereals was it also well, there to help yep yeah, as it turned out it mm. gave us the opportunity to, to do that a chap from kellogg's asked to meet me uh, well, he wasn't from Kellogg's, but he was a marketing man working alongside Kellogg's. And he asked me, he said, well, what do you think about this cereal and that cereal? I said, oh, I said well, yeah, they're okay. You know, you think about it. And I said, well, you take wheat and you take this and you and you cook the hell out of it and you've got a crispy cereal. You know, you're never going to get much, are you, when you've you got a cereal like that. All right, so you can add some more vitamins, you add some minerals and you can do those sort of things artificially. But when you're cooking things to a crisp, <laughs> you can't expect to get too much out of a cereal. He said, "Well, what would you do?" And I said, "Well, well, this is what we could do. You could you could have some of that because that's what people like to eat. But you could put some other stuff that's not cooked in it, and you could adjust the amount of sugar and the amount of salt and so on. So you could make it a bit healthier, but still make it taste all right." So he said, "Would you like to design something?" So I had so I spent a couple of hours on it, sending him something. 
which he went back to his people at Kellogg's and uh, they uh, probably uh, fixed up a few things that I hadn't considered. And we ended up with that cereal called Sustain. Mm. Uh, and and the, the reason that was done was that they, all, they set up a deal with the Institute of Sport directly with them uh, that they would put a certain amount of money, I think it was two cents per packet in those days, two, two cents per packet, which wasn't much, but was only about a dollar forty or fifty a packet, I think, when it came out, and um, and that went to, directly towards scholarships. You know, we weren't allowed to accept money to do those things in those particular days as consultants, but it went straight into um, into uh, uh, scholarships at the institute, and I was pretty happy with that. It also gave us um, uh, an opportunity, as it turned out, uh, through the commercials that they wanted to do to let people know what the Institute of Sport was about. And I think that was probably the best part of it all, to be to be honest. Uh, people got to know what was going on in Canberra at the Institute of Sport in biomechanics and uh, particularly with our – we had a terrific staff. You know, one of the best things I ever did at the Institute was to develop a terrific staff, you know, firstly in um, in the medical side and the physiotherapy side. We had fantastic people. Then in biomechanics, in psychology, in physiology – when I look back, um, I must admit I did a pretty good job in selecting the right sort of people that, and uh, that they stood the test of time and in the end I didn't end up doing anywhere near as much as what they did and, and we got some terrific results. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you gave Deke a job there uh, in the early days and Deke eventually went on to become the, uh, the director there for uh, 1990-95. Now, as you mentioned, you were Deke's um, sports physiologist and nutritionist um, working alongside... Deeg's coach, Pat Clahessy, or Chloe. Um, so you guys obviously very successful there, that trio. Um, Deke obviously went on to be a, a brilliant athlete. You had a lot of uh, strong runners back in those days. Um, I think everyone wanted to be part of the action, even some overseas runners coming in and, and joining in over the years. Did you sort of realise those days when you're developing um, you know, Deke's career and, uh, and all the other distance runners, you know, there's something special going on or were you just sort of just so heavily involved in it all? Um, just trying to produce that, that quality in research and coaching? Um, I always thought there was something special going on in the Institute of Sport. Mm. Uh, yeah, the a hell of a challenge. I think I always, I always forget to look this up, but I think the year before I went to the Institute of Sport, uh, Montreal, I think we won three or four medals. You know, I don't think we got a gold medal, but we, I think we won two or three or four medals. Uh, let's say it was four, I think it was. Um, by the time I left the Institute and things had flourished, when I say things had flourished, we'd stimulated the states to develop their own institutes of sport, which I thought was one of the best things we ever did. We developed networks of sports science people, uh, the physios, uh, and the, um, the sports medical practitioners all blossomed in the way they were working with coaches. My staff always knew that our bosses, really, the people that really called the tune were the coaches, so we were working for them. We had to find out things that allowed them to coach better, and we developed terrific relationships with, with the athletes. So by the time that I... Um, Took on, well, actually, this is when Chloe, Pat Clohessy left, and I learned a lot from Pat Clohessy as a coach. He's been a fantastic coach over the years. But when Pat Clohessy decided to leave the Institute of Sport, I think it was about 97 or something like that, 
I thought well, it would be a nice idea for me to just see what it's like to be a professional coach for a few years. I took that on. Now, at that stage, when I left physiology there at the uh, Institute of Sport, uh, I think we won 54 medals at the Olympics. So we went from four to 54 mm. between 81 and 96. Um, so that's that's a fantastic leap in 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 in, uh, in world uh, status in terms of sport, particularly Olympic sports, and that was brought about by the um, by the development in Canberra, but also in the states and the relationships that coaches had with sports science people and sports medicine people all around facilitating that coaching experience. No question about that. Uh, so I thought, you know, there was, it was a very special time all the way through. And as you just mentioned, it was all started from the first person um, I employed in the lab, so to speak, uh, was this uh, young Robert DiCostella. And why did I appoint him? Well, why wouldn't I appoint someone that just had a biophysics degree at, at um, Swinburne Institute of Technology down in Melbourne? Just and was a young runner that everybody was saying could be fantastic. So he was going to be able to talk to athletes. He had the skills to help me set up what we needed to do in the lab. Two of us in the lab there together with a, a, another woman called Wendy Cupkey, who had a, a biochemistry background, but also was, <laughs> was our receptionist. So with three of us there, we're running the show for the first few months with eight sports. And it was, uh, you know, it was a, uh, it was a, a very, very exciting time. Um, not that we knew exactly what we were doing at all. But we had to learn the hard way, I suppose. Yeah, sure, sure. Mate, let's talk about some of the athletes that uh, that you've coached. Um, the great Lisa Martin, now on decky, uh, as you mentioned, uh, I believe, yeah, the only the only runner to pick up a, a medal at the Olympics. So she um, she only 13 seconds off the gold there over in Seoul, running a 2:25:53. And she picked up the gold in uh, and the comms at uh, Edinburgh and Auckland. So uh, yeah, tell us about uh, about coaching Lisa. Yeah, well Lisa, well she's the only marathon medalist we've had. Okay, that's true. Sure. Yeah, the only marathon medalist that yep. um, Australia has produced, and we've <laughs> in the Olympics. Yep. And we've had some fantastic. You know, we've had world champions, haven't we? And then yes. and, and Stella and those sort of Derek Clayton go like uh, world record holders. So, uh, but to win in the uh, to win a medal in the Olympics, uh, not easy. Not easy when uh, you know you've got to be at your best at, at the right time, mm. produce produce on the day, and it's easier said than done for athletes, as as we all know. Um, with with Lisa, I've I'd only coached two athletes before before Lisa rang me up from the US and asked if I if she came if she if she was to come back to Australia would I coach her? Um, and that was interesting because the first athlete that I coached was a girl called Carolyn Swallow, and and I only coached her because she got lost a scholarship. And she wanted to stay in Canberra, and she just didn't know what to do, and she was very upset. Uh, so I um, decided to coach her. I didn't know if I was doing the right thing because I was so busy with the physiology at that stage um, that uh, I didn't know if I was doing the right thing. But because she was so upset, I'd, and I'd had a good relationship with her as a physiologist, uh, I decided to coach her. As it turned out, 
things turned around for her. She uh, she ran really well and became an Olympian and ran an Australian record in the um, in the 10K within a year and a half. So uh, I was pretty happy with that. And then another chap came along who asked me to coach him as well because he'd been in a pro- he'd had a problem uh, that he, a real problem that his wife had been killed in an accident, and that was Andrew Lloyd. And at that stage, uh, Andrew Lloyd, who you would know, became um, gold medalist in the 5K in, in Auckland Commonwealth Games. And he, um, I was coaching two people, Andrew Lloyd and Carolyn Swallow. And that's when Lisa Ondiki, or her name was Lisa Martin then, um, I got a call and surprised the hell out of me, to be honest, because um, I'd only met her once and happened to be in Edinburgh. Uh, during the Commonwealth Games, probably a couple of years before that, and uh, briefly met her. And uh, and I got a real surprise when she rang and said, you know, if she came to Canberra, you know, would I coach her? So that was how that started, um, that that uh, that career with mm. coaching, yep. Aston. Michael Shelley, very successful at the Com Games, silver and then two golds. Again, if you could just tell us about, uh, I mean, obviously that was via correspondence because Michael's up on the Gold Coast there, but um, yeah, that was again another uh, nice successful coaching um, partnership there with an athlete. Yes, um, well, yeah, I was just with Michael the other day. He's not, he just retired last year, um, earlier this year or last year, but uh, basically Michael, when I took on uh, a little bit of full-time coaching at the Institute of Sport, following physiology just to see what that was like after Paclo Hesse left, uh, Michael was one of my my runners, at, at my scholarship runners. So this is when he was age 17. He was um, recommended by his coach um, up, at, up at the Gold Coast and came down as a potential steeplechase runner. But I soon realised, even though he's, he had an unusual sort of a, a technique where his running stride wasn't as long as what one might expect with a, for a top runner, uh, and he wasn't didn't look as fluent, that he had some speed. And rather than just concentrate on steeplechase, it fitted in with my program better to, to, to see how fast he could run a 1500. And he, and he ran, and he, he, he came from... 348 down to 339 as a uh, as a 1500 meter runner, which is pretty good. However, he developed an injury in uh, doing a program in the gym uh, where he did something a little bit different for a few weeks uh, and developed a, 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 an injury that stopped him running. It stopped him stopped him right in his tracks with the injury in the, in the pelvis, uh, and uh, and after that. He, he lacked confidence in being able to run fast. So I said, all right, Michael, and he agreed. And in fact, he probably, he probably suggested it, that we, we work more towards in some of the longer distance running, which he never ever thought that he would do. And uh, that's where the marathon career actually started, where we did some 10Ks. He, he, he just got under, under 28 minutes for a 10K, one of only about 10 or 12 people that I think have done it in Australia. And uh, basically, um, we went from there to, to the marathon. Never looked back in his career because for him uh, to win those three medals in three consecutive Commonwealth Games with the last two being gold just shows what sort of a competitor he was, being able to run well at the right time and punch above his weight 
because he always beat runners that had much faster personal best times than him. When you um when you're coaching these athletes, do you actually see like as far as their personality or, or their training habits or you know it's just their, their rituals that they sort of go through mentally? Is there anything you can see that's very common amongst these top athletes? I mean, you can say obviously they work hard and they're dedicated, but is there something that you can pick up on that this person's going to be something special? Um, well, I think all of the all of the it's not just the top runners that have got that but the runners can get the best out of themselves and just some runners who get the best out of themselves turn out to be top runners and others that don't turn out to be top runners but they're all there's not a lot of difference in the characteristics between anyone that mm. gets the best out of themselves and it's it's that intrinsic or that self-motivation you know i don't think when i was coaching footy and coaching cricket you've you, you got a different mentality, uh, or particularly with football. In most of all the footballers I was coaching were, were being paid. They were professionals, sure, but they all had other jobs. But there was a lot of motivation had to be sort of instilled in those players. You sort of have to stir them up and get them to run as a play as a team. And, you know, it's a contact sport and all those sorts of things. In those days, it was a bit probably not as quick and not as skillful, but it was just as rough or even rougher in those days because – when we were playing, uh, we would have one television camera there if it was a televised game, one umpire, and you couldn't see what was happening behind the play. And a lot of things happened behind the play in those days that, you know, <laughs> you know be considered assault now, but that was part of the game. But uh, the, the one thing with all of those, that answering that, back to answering that question, it's that motivation, that self-motivation. You can, you can tell when runners are going to be really good that they're driven. They're driven to do their very, very best themselves. And it's driven not by money or, or those, it's not by fame. It's just they're driven uh, to get the very best out of something they love to do. And, and that's consistent with, with all the runners that I coach uh, now and, and, and in the previous, you know, since, since the 80, 80, 84, 85 when I started. So basically, uh, it hasn't changed at all. And you know, you know which runners are going to get the best out of themselves, and others that, well, they like to run, but it's it's not the be all end all, and and they'll enjoy it, but that's about it. As a coach, how how do you best try to manage load? Because a lot of a lot of runners just want to run as much as they can all the time. If they're tired, fatigued, a little bit of a niggle coming on, they'll they'll still want to go out and run. How do you sort of you know, navigate that, that conversation with the athlete to let them know that, you know, heading out for, for that run may not necessarily be of any benefit and just, yeah, just trying to manage your load. And that, that goes from the recreational run all the way up to your lead. It's all about how much is enough and, and does this run tomorrow actually going to be beneficial? Is it going to create some sort of, you know, training stimulus that's, that's going to make me a better runner? Because that's always a tricky tricky one to navigate, that one, isn't it? It is. It is, Yeah. See, over the over the years, we've you know spent a lot of time with team sports, like rowing and you know, the kayakers and you know, the, well, the swimmers and, and and soccer players and all. You know, as to try and find out, is there a way where you can you can really carefully measure um, training load? Not so much measure the training load because you can measure that easily enough, but to measure how uh, an athlete 
is coping with their training load and whether whether they they can do a little bit more or or whatever. Because we know that the more that someone trains, probably the more that someone trains and absorbs that training, the better they're going to be. But the trick is, the more is not always better because the more can take you over the top, as you well know, take you over the top so that you no longer are adapting, you are just trying to survive. And by trying to survive, you can actually lose fitness. It'd be like, it'd be like being in the middle of a, a desert without food and water. You're doing a hell of a lot of physical activity day after day after day, but your fitness and your health is, is just going downhill. Mm. So that can, that can happen to a, to a lesser degree, of course, in, um, in athletes and runners. But over the years, as a physiologist, as well as being a coach, it is just personal communication that I found to be the best indicator. Personal communication uh, regularly. Uh, when I've got an athlete, and I'm just thinking of one that I've got right at the moment, that is a very good athlete uh, who has had a history of injury, then I like to talk to that athlete about how they feel and how they've um, how they've recovered every single day, every single day. Now, I know that's time-consuming, and I can't do it to everybody, but I can talk to talk to even the, I can talk to all of my athletes individually and, and encourage them to talk to me or bring something up when I see them at training on, uh, well, I, the opportunity to see at training every day anyway because we do gym on Monday. We have training as a group on Tuesday. We do gym on Wednesday. We have training as a group on Thursday. I see some of them on Friday. We train on Saturday morning and I see them on Sunday. for their, So I, I see them nearly every day. So I've got plenty of opportunity to communicate with those athletes. And if we do it wrong, it's because I haven't communicated properly with them or they haven't done the same with me or told me about something they should have told me about. And I've got a very strong principle that when something comes up, we nip it in the bud. Mm. We don't muck around. Um, might be Lisa Waitman down in Melbourne, for example. She, she's a very, very good communicator. Uh, she's a medalist in the Commonwealth Games. She's produced the best at the right time. She's nearly 42 years old now, just run a PB in a half marathon of the 10K, so she's, she's going pretty damn well. But as soon as she gets anything that is worth, you know, she's not sure about, she'll call me. I'll call her back if she misses me, if I'm in the middle of work or whatever, and she's working as well. Nine times out of ten, right, no running today, no running tomorrow, Lisa. Um, let's have a talk about it. See your physio, see see your, your doctor, uh, give me the feedback, and then we'll reconsider what's going on next. And she's been really good that way, and that's why she's been able to um, to run consistently over the last, uh, how long have I been coaching her? It must be 14 or 15 years as well. Because a lot of runners, you know, if they feel that, that niggle and uh, it's not getting any better, they'll... Um very hard for them to stop running you know obviously it would make sense even if jumping on the bike or jumping in the pool doing some laps do something to keep the fitness up but so you, you're not afraid to tell an athlete to um just just stop if it hurts it only makes sense to stop and uh, you get it assessed and um because yeah, because a lot of, lot of runners will just continue to just head out for an easy 30 minutes of an afternoon even though that they're sore and uh, just continue to to aggravate that, which I always find a little bit strange. I call it like a, a running addiction. A lot of runners have; they've just got to run regardless. So, again, that's a, that's a tricky one for a lot of people to navigate. To to not be afraid that if they have one or two days off, even though they've run every day for the last three hundred, that they're going to lose all their fitness overnight, which a lot of people fear. 
Well, yeah, that's right. I mean, <laughs> it's just a matter of, you know, we just talk in terms of common sense that sometimes you're going to become fitter, if you like, more specifically fitter or in terms of performance by having a rest, by, have, by recovering. Because it just allows you to absorb and adapt to the training. As I said before, you know, it'd be like the opposite is, you know, just trying to survive. You know, and sometimes athletes seem to be just wanting to survive. They'll they'll keep soldiering on where, you know, whereas just a, a day of or two or three, even a week where they might do some cross training, as you mentioned before, on, on the elliptical machine or on the, on the even... Uh, on the on the bike, running in the water, swimming, they can they can improve their fitness that way, or doing some gym work where they're not aggravating the particular injury they've got, and improve their fitness in other ways while they're getting rid of any of the any of the problems. So it's it's hard for me to understand why an athlete wouldn't understand that. I think most of my athletes would understand that. It's just a matter of um, discussing it with them. Yep. But I'm fortunate. I'm fortunate to have a whole lot of uh, runners in my group right now that do understand it because they're studying sports science, studying uh, physiotherapy, chiropractic, uh, and uh, all of those disciplines. Uh, you know, they really, with those disciplines, they they really do understand what they're doing. And and uh, I use sports science people, physio, and and um, one or two chiropractors, and you know, physiotherapy and chiropractors sort of mixing up, the, sort of got together. In the old days, there was the chiropractors and the physios. Now there's, the techniques are sort of moulded in together, and we've got some very, very good practitioners around Canberra that I, I rely on with my athletes quite a bit. Yeah, I always sort of say, you know, I get fit when I'm when I'm recovering, when, when I'm laying in bed, when I'm sleeping. Like when you you know say you're on the track doing you know digs quarters or whatever you might be, you actually, in a way, you're sort of actually reducing your fitness. You're actually breaking your body down, and you don't actually get get the benefit or get fit until you actually allow your body to recover, and that's when you actually get those those fitness gains, not actually during the session, but that recovery after. Well, it is. You know, it's mm. all about um, stimulating and and and. Um... Uh, you know, stimulating a, a system and then uh, then allowing that system to adapt, and that's what human body the human body does. But if you the human body again, if you if you overstimulate a particular area to the extent that it, it just can't adapt, it's it's likely to tell you that it can't adapt by saying, "Well, I'm breaking down, you know, and I just can't go anymore," and you and an injury or or something, an illness occurs because the immune system is, is is exactly in the same boat. And athletes get sick, athletes get injured if they train too much. You know, it's that's not training though. That's that's just trying to survive. And they they get a lot of athletes get mixed up between survival and training. Yeah, yeah. So so just having that discipline to listen and 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 react to it. Mate, I remember back to a conversation I had with Reese Edwards. Um, you remember Reese? You trained him for for years now. I think he's last time I spoke to him was up um, up north coast in New South Wales. So Reese said um, when he used to train with you that that Dick always likes to have his runners in ten k shape, and that uh, that sort of gives them that required fitness that sort of enables them to you know tweak their training programs to prepare for you know a shorter long distance. But basically, if you're in ten k shape, then you're sort of ready ready to go. Um, is that fairly accurate? Yeah, yeah, and I remember Reese Edwards well. Of course, he was he trained with us for quite a while down here. Then went up to the coast and continued to train by himself. Uh, and he's a typical 
runner that has a really good knowledge of what's going on with his profession and so on. So um, with with Reese, uh, along with the others that I had there, yes, he, he's right. 10K fitness is fundamental to middle distance running and uh, longer running because 10K fitness sort of indicates uh, in the physiological terms where this threshold is, you know, you call it aerobic or anaerobic threshold. You can mix those terms up a little bit. In other words, the level at which you can hold for around about 30 minutes or thereabouts of solid running, just holding your homeostasis or the, the equilibrium. In other words, um, where your heart rate's steady, your oxygen consumption's fairly steady, your body temperature's fairly steady, you're holding things fairly steady for half an hour at the maximum amount. That's an important state because that is highly correlated with how fast a runner can actually run a marathon and how fast a runner can run an 800 or a 1500. It's just that when you want to run an 800 or a 1500, you've got to do other training on top of getting that 10K fitness work and alongside it. When you're running, that's for 800, 1500. For a marathon, you do different training because you've got to get the energy storage system going, which you don't really need so much for the 800 and 1500. So that 10K forms the basis for a lot of the work that I do. Because when I know what a 10K, a runner's 10K time is, they're roughly their, their threshold, that equilibrium state they can hold for 30 minutes, then I can, uh, then I've got a pretty good idea of how to plan training around either side of it and how much they need to do based on, on, that, on that, particular, uh, that particular measurements. Um, so that's why it's an important characteristic for a runner for me. Now, um, you've sort of been involved in uh, preparing a lot of fine distance runners um, for major champs over the years. Sort of like asking who's your favourite child type thing, this question, but is there sort of one occasion that sort of uh, still brings up the old goosebumps when you, when you think back, like what one of those real fine moments that it could be for the athlete or it could be for yourself or it could be both, but yeah, one of those moments you think is one of the big highlights of your career as a coach? I have answered this. Someone asked me this a while back, and I might have given an answer and then regretted giving the answer. You know, the the reason I regret giving the answer is if I pick out something that comes to mind straight away, I think, oh, gee, you know. Um, well, give us a couple then, mate. Well, it's not even giving you a couple. Okay. I mean, there are hundreds. There are yep. hundreds of occasions where where you think that this is fantastic. This is why you coach. Um, uh, because you see the athlete really enjoying themselves. And, and uh, when you see the athlete really enjoying themselves and doing something that they've been really trying to do for a long, long time and finally getting there, um, that is, um, that's what coaching is all about. I could go you know, right from the, the highest level of performance from someone like Lisa Ondiki getting our only medal in the, in the marathon and coaching her through to... You know, and that that level through to Michael Shelley winning his gold medals and Lisa Waitman and uh, but but just to mention those two for example, what about you know the other people that have won that I've coached that have won medals? You know, there's, there's eight or nine of them in in Commonwealth Games medals. That, um, you know, the, the Andrew Lloyds and and these sorts of people that when we go when I go back at that particular time, it's just sensational. So it's not really fair. I've mentioned a couple just because they've been right at the top. It's not really fair just to mention them when there are so many others that have won that I've been involved with with 
medals in the in the Commonwealth Games. And even even I remember some as a physiologist working with swimmers that won Olympic medals and and, and broke world records uh, that I've worked with. Now, they're fantastic experiences too. Uh, and having been with those swimmers as they walk out and, and do the job, you know, to me that's. Um, then, then you can go back to somebody who just gets a, you know, PB in the Canberra Times Fun Run, or or, or a veteran athlete that I coach um, uh, that has just came second or third in, in the camp, or even may have won the Canberra Times, Canberra Times uh, 10K. Mm. Uh, you know, that sort of thing, isn't it? That's that's a really good feeling as well. So it, it comes it comes all over the place, and I there'd be hundreds of experience like that over the years. I want to have to say, you know. Uh, Aston? Sure. I'm going to throw another curly question at you too that you'll probably have to... Uh... <laughs> well, that was really curly because, yeah. you know... If you had to give a tip to, to, to runners out there, that you know, the most important thing they should be looking at within their training program. The training itself. Um, nowadays with nutrition, with the amount of... Unless you, you've got some wild ideas, the nutrition side with us... In Canberra, for example, in Australia, where we get food coming from all over the world, plenty of fruit and vegetables, and and all of the characteristics of general nutrition are within our reach every single day. Nutrition shouldn't be a huge factor in terms of how it might be in a, in a, in a less developed country. So we 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 should be pretty well right there, but nevertheless. Um, athletes have got to know that nutrition is an important characteristic of their training and that uh, the good quality carbohydrates and fruit and vegetables are very, very important part of training, as is the protein, and are the good fats. No, no question about that. Now, that's, that's one side. The training itself is the, the factor that makes the difference in most people. If you can train specifically according to your particular makeup, and you can take two, say, 800-meter runners who might run very fast. Let's say they run, you know, for sake of a time, one, at, one minute 50 seconds for an 800-meter run. It's not fast by world standards, but it's a very good 800-meter run. You can have those two runners being completely different characteristics that require two different training programs but still actually have the same PB because one might be more inclined to be a faster 400, 800 meter runner. The other one might be a, uh, an 800, 1500 meter runner. And therefore you've got to be able to um, train uh, those runners differently. So runners themselves have to recognize what their best training program is going to be to get the best out of themselves for the event they want. So I would say, that that's an important aspect of the runner. And then finally, with the training, to understand how much you can do while you are actually adapting and improving and what is too much and, and, and uh, it, it, what that optimal level is. And it is an optimal level, not a maximal level of training that we're, we're all looking for, even for a marathoner. Um, you know, they'll run lots of Ks a week and marathoners are often running 200 Ks a week. We know that. Uh, but another marathoner might not be able to run 200 k's a week to get the best out of him or herself, whereas 165 might be just about right. And I've had both in both those categories as well.
Great answer, Dick. Mate, let's uh, let's finishing up chatting about you've been involved improving the physical literacy in uh, in children, mate. Pretty big and noteworthy passion of yours uh, for a long time. Uh, with the development of the Look Project, which is an uh, acronym for Lifestyle of Our Kids. So let's talk about that, please, Dick. Well, uh, I, I just heard uh, my son, who, who's who got a PhD from the University of Canberra in, in, uh, in physiology and physical activity, uh, just told me yesterday that um, I, he heard that the Victorian government was going to be putting in uh, a, a new system. I don't know whether it's come out this morning. I have to have a look. Um of um, in improving physical education in schools down there. And if that's the case, I'd, I'd be very, very pleased because we did two randomised controlled trials down in Victoria to show the importance of introducing more quality physical education into primary schools by upskilling the classroom teachers to take physical education because we just haven't got enough physical education specialists in primary schools to take on average, more than one class a week for a primary school child. Now, if that if that's if my, what my son told me was true, and I'll have a look later on, that they're introducing uh, um, more kids in a more um, uh, professional development of classroom teachers through introducing uh, physical education specialists going around primary schools and doing this professional development, that's exactly the program that we did a randomised controlled trial on and provided all the results to the education department down in Victoria, and that would be music to my ears. What's also music to my ears is that we're doing exactly that work now in South Australia. South Australia have taken the lead with the Minister of Education, their CEO over there, and the education department with ACHPA, the Professional Association of Physical Education, and Flinders University. We've got a program that we're running completely next year, introducing uh, a professional development program, which we call the People Approach, the same one as down in Victoria, physical education for physical literacy, a physical education, physical literacy approach, where if, if we get this right in Australia, we'll be able to improve the quality of life of those kids for the rest of their lifetime. And that comes, that that information comes from a lot of work that's been done around the world, but specifically that look project, that lifestyle of our kids project that, that you mentioned, Aston. And that lifestyle of our kids project has been a very, very important project for us, where we measured 830 kids in Canberra, grade two. We measured them in grade four, in grade six, in their year 10. That was the last time we measured them. They were 16 years old. Next year and the year after, they'll be 24 and 25 years old. These eight-year-olds are now 24, 25 years old. Now, what we've done, we've measured their physical activity, their nutrition, their health in terms of blood measures and heart measures and brain measures in terms of psychology and their sociology. I had a whole lot of team of people around measuring all these things. And we've been able to show, firstly, how important physical education is in primary schools and we can't afford to, to continue to ignore it as we are doing in Canberra to a certain degree because we haven't got many specialists in primary schools at all in Canberra and classroom teachers are so busy that they can't take up the slack. Um, and then what we'll be able to show is what is or how important has physical education and physical activity and nutrition been in eight-year-olds, 10-year-olds, 12-year-olds, 16-year-olds, 
for when people are 25, 35, 45, and even up to 85 later on. So that's why that study is so important. And I'm hoping that the government, particularly the ACT government with Andrew Barr, because we spoke to him recently, will be able to take on this people approach based on the look study that Victoria seems to be taking on now and Adelaide and South Australia are definitely taking on. So I'd love to see us take it up in the ACT as well. That's, that's fantastic work, Dick. As an observer, um, I've got you know, young kids and um, yeah, you can see that uh, you can see the problem that uh, that exists. You know, kids don't seem to be moving. What well, we know, they're not moving as much as as they used to. They're not moving as well. I don't feel. And uh, yeah, certainly the diet isn't isn't as good. And you can you know you can visually see that. So uh, so yeah, there's certainly work that needs to be done, and which what you're doing. And just yeah, as you mentioned, hopefully the government uh, take it all on board and listen and uh, and put changes in because uh, something needs to happen soon. Something needs to change. Yeah, well, particularly when we've we found by the highest level of uh, research that we can do, that's a randomised controlled trial where we're comparing how kids change against kids that aren't getting, for example, physical education in schools. Mm. We've actually proven how important it is, but the most recent study we've done really adds to this because the most recent study, again, it was directed by Rowan Telford, who uh, is just lives in Melbourne now but brought up in Canberra, um, and studied at UC, he, with the team that we've got in, in Canberra, at the University of Canberra now, has just completed a study in Queensland. We've invited, we were invited to do the study in Queensland that showed exactly the same as we found in the primary schools in three-, four-, and five-year-old kids in early childcare centres. We've just finished the study. In fact, we're just writing it up. That's what I've got to do today when I finish talking to you, Ashton, to finish off... Uh, and that, uh, one, of the, one of the next papers in this particular project called the Active Early Learning Project, which really shows the extreme importance of introducing a physically active lifestyle in childcare centres. Because when we introduced that and compared it with kids that didn't have that in the childcare centres, we found not only improvements in physical activity, but we found improvements in social and psychological aspects as well how the kids were communicating, not just with their motor skills, but their communication skills as well. And that, that all sort of fits in with the, the premise that our mind and our body are developing together. And when the body's not developing as well through a lack of physical activity, the mind doesn't develop as well either. And that's why this, is, this physical education in early childcare centres is just as important, probably more important than in primary school, but we can't say more important, but just as important in primary schools and then and uh, in preparing for an active lifestyle through life. No, it's fantastic work, yeah. And as, as you know, most people listening and myself and yourself know, um, exercise, it, uh, you know, it changes the state of the mind and many times you go for a run with a lot of chatter in your brain and thinking of, thinking of things and then you finish that run and it's all clear and gives you that clarity and you feel so much better so there's such a good hormonal response when you actually exercise and, and when you run so um you know like you said that that link between uh the, the body and the mind is um is so obvious and it's something that as athletes we know and even goal setting and, and uh, having desires and, and all that that comes out of sports so it's not just a physical side but it's actually basically enabling you to to um to have a goal to go for um, and to better improve and and as you know, um, obviously active kids, generally, I'm not too sure, you know, 
if you've looked in these, I mean, you would have known about these studies, but how much is documented that uh, kids are more active, seem to be um, a little bit clever in, in, in school, if I can use that in that word, because there's, uh, that the body is, is healthier. And uh, yeah, so it's it's such an important thing in, in um, society today. Nicely, look, you're, you're, you're probably referring to one of the studies, one of our original look studies, where we found that even in, in, in the ACT, the children who had physical education and uh, this physical education was developed by a group called the Blue Earth Foundation, who have done a fantastic job producing physical, top-level physical education in, in schools that, that don't have it themselves. The kids that had that between grade three and five improved their NAPLAN scores by 13 points more than the kids that actually spent more time inside without the physical activity, without the physical education. And that links up with what you just said, Aston, that, uh, the, and, and I mentioned before, that the mind and body develop together. And there are a lot of reasons. There's not, uh, not a simple straight cause there, but people who are more physically active and, and are involved with physical skills actually are able to, and the children are able to concentrate better in class. And, and, and that was shown by the improvement in the NAPLAN scores that we, we saw, but also by the testimony of the of the teachers that actually teach these kids to say, yeah, well, these kids are better students because they're doing or at the same time that they're doing the physical education. Look, mate, I'm going to um, wrap that up today, Dick. I'm really looking forward to doing this again uh, soon. Uh, like I mentioned before, um, there's so much we could talk about. Um, Look, you've uh, been such a huge uh, contributor to uh, Australian sport in general with all the, all the work you've done in research and in coaching. And I think um, Australian sport and certainly distance running is a hell of a lot better shape due to, uh, due to all that work that you've done. And I'm glad that uh, you've picked up some awards um, over the years, Order of Australia, and uh, I even saw you picked up a little uh, Senior Citizen of the Year. And you also have been awarded into the Australian Sporting Hall of Fame. So, man, all that hard work, is, it's good that that has been recognised. And uh, we have a lot to owe to you, Professor Dick Telford. And, uh, and all the work you're going to continue to do in the future, um, like I said, we're a lot better off having people like you around, Dick. So, uh, yeah, it's it's been an honour speaking to you today. Well, thanks very much, Aston, but don't forget uh, a lot of this stuff I do because it's, uh, <laughs> I enjoy doing it. <laughs> it's, uh, that's, that's what life's all about, isn't it? And uh, even right now with the research and the running, I, um, I'm doing it because I enjoy doing it. So it's a little bit selfish in that way as well. We're all, we're all here to enjoy ourselves and get satisfaction of what we do. And, and we all have our different ways of doing things. And and I uh, appreciate uh, having a chat with you it's, and, uh, and, and, and the Running Guide podcast. Well, uh, you're doing a great job. Keep it going. Yeah, thank you so much, Dick. Yeah, yeah, thank you once again. Well, we'll catch up one day, mate. I'll come down and say good day to you. Yeah, you better do that. Come down to training. Come yep. down to training have a bit of a run with us. Yeah. Fantastic. No, I will do that, Dick. All right, thank right. you again. All the best. See you later. Thanks, mate. Thanks for listening again, guys. appreciate those who made the effort over there at iTunes to give the show some uh, reviews and ratings. Much appreciated, and hopefully that will continue. Uh, like and share this episode, and uh, throw in some comments, good or bad, uh, to keep me informed on um, how it's all going um, on your side of things. I'd like to uh, receive a bit of support, basically for the price of a Melbourne latte per month, uh, over there at Patreon. Got one. would love to uh, have more than one. Maybe that's my mum. I won't tell you that. But uh, yeah, Patreon support, five bucks a month just to uh, help support the show would be fantastic. Also, there'll be a link in the show notes as well as that for the purchase of the podcast singlets. All right, guys, thank you very much. Cheers. Speak soon. Bye.